Welcome to the Red Door Church Sermon Podcast. Red Door Church is a church seeking to transform the city of Pretoria by the power of the gospel. We are distinctly mission-minded, community-cultivating, and city-loving. Please enjoy this week's sermon, and don't forget to follow and continue the conversation by sharing with those around you. Father, we pray for that, for change that is not temporary, but permanent. We need holistic change, both in what's happening in the country, but maybe more importantly within ourselves, so that we would be the boat, even though the waves are crashing and the wind is strong, Father, that we would be at ease knowing that you are at the helm. You are in control. You are our God. Help us see that reality within your word through your spirit. We pray, Jesus. Amen. I was even speaking about Jabalilia this morning about how much a person can change and how quickly can a person change. Um, is, it, uh, is it true? Are we able to change ourselves? And if so, how much are we able to change ourselves? We see this constantly, that people are time and time and again trying to change themselves, uh, maybe conform to something, or maybe reinvent themselves. We see this a lot with university students. As soon as they leave high school, they're like, okay, I'm going to start with a new identity. I'm going to reinvent myself. This is who I'm going to be. This is going to be my personality. Uh, people are trying to do this, not just in that. You've got almost that second stage as well when you're approaching your midlife crisis People looking back at their lives. I'm not going to name names, but we're getting close to it, guys. Uh, <laughs> what have I accomplished in my life? Maybe I should try something new. Maybe I should do something new. And so people typically go one of two ways when they want to change themselves. One, they recognize that maybe the problem with them being stuck in a rut why they can't find the discipline in their lives that they want is their external circumstances. And so we try and do that. They're like, okay, maybe this was the wrong career choice. Maybe if I just change my environment, change my relationships, uh, change my job, the scenery, uh, maybe the way that I was orienting my life, instead of going into a corporate job, I'm going to be a traveling photographer. Maybe at long last, this will give me the things that I think is needed for me personally to change. The second thing that we try to do is modify ourselves our personalities and our character, our behaviors. We want to be more disciplined people. We want to be healthier. How can I be more confident in conversations and public speaking? And when you go and look up some books to help you in this, there is no shortage of help. I promise you, if you were to go to exclusive books, for those who don't know, it's bookstores. It's got these things with pages and paper. Very old school, but effective. Uh, but in those bookstores, you have these large, large sections dedicated to self-help and self-improvement. It is a multi-billion dollar industry, and every year, new books get written on how you can better improve yourself, or maybe put bluntly, how you can change yourself for the better. And even though this is a particularly difficult process to change ourselves, we do see that people are able to change their behaviors and to discipline themselves. These are normally the people that write the books. However, when we look at the fundamental character of a person, those things that ultimately determine who you are and what you value, 
Not only how you act, but how you will react in certain, certain specific situations. The saying rings true. Can a leper change its spots? And the answer is, surely not. Most of us don't want to accept this. And so the process of trying to reinvent ourselves continues. And it's exactly because of this reason why advertising is such a booming business and so successful. The thing that advertising does, it never tries and sells a product. It taps into the desire for us that we want to change and that we want to be different. And so the only thing that advertising does, it tells you that this product will finally help you be the change. If you buy this new car, you'll be able to get up early in the morning. If you do this thing or follow this regimen, you'll finally be able to do and affect all the change that you want. This home, this type of deodorant will finally get you into the relationship <laughs> that you wanted. <laughs> and so that you can finally realize all your dreams. Now, is there something out there that we can really do? to actually affect not just temporary change and not just a personality or character change that's about 10 to 15%. I always tell this, when we're starting with marriage counseling this week, so you guys need to pray for us, but I always tell this to prospective people getting married. Don't think you're going to change that person. Maybe 10, 15%, but you can see the natural flow of the river, how that's going to impact. They might change a little bit during their lifetime, but the person is still going to stay the same, so don't think you're going to be able to change them We've heard this, you know, almost cliche. You're not going to change them in the relationship. The person that you're marrying, they're going to stay pretty much the same. So you need to know what you're buying in a certain sense. But many religions put this on their brochure that they can change you. If you buy into this religion, this external thing, it will be able to fundamentally change who you are. And many Christians even do this as well. They approach Christianity from the standpoint that I want this thing to come and be as a self-help book to, for the betterment of my own person. Christianity, however, contains a very different point. The point of Christianity is actually that you cannot change. I don't know if you guys knew this. The saying, a leopard cannot change its spots, comes from the Bible. It is in Jeremiah 13, verse 23, that the prophet says, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Surely not. Then you also cannot do good who are accustomed to do evil. And so this is, the, this is the biblical viewpoint of who we are. That who you are is who you are, and there's not a lot that you can do. Rather, what needs to happen is not that you need to make a change. The point of Christianity is that you need to be changed from an external force. You need something to come in and change you rather than you trying to change yourself. And family, that's what John 3 is all about. And so let's jump in. If you missed the first couple of chapters of John, uh, John the gospel writer, what he's trying to do through his tellings of the life and teachings of Jesus, he's trying to convince us that Jesus is in fact the Messiah. The Messiah is an old time word that means he was the prophesied and promised king from the Old Testament. The people of Israel, they've always been in bondage. 
under other people. They've always been persecuted. And so the prophets came and said, this king is gonna arrive one day and he's finally gonna set you free. You're gonna have salvation in him. We call him the Messiah, the, prof- the promised savior. And in comes Jesus into the fray and John says, this is the promised Messiah. This is the, the guy that we've always been praying and hoping and dreaming about that's coming to take away the sin of the world to come and save us. And so we see that Jesus' ministry is beginning. Jesus is affirming this calling and he's already calling people to himself. And so it starts with miracles and wonders. And it's not just any type of miracles. One, the miracle definitely does prove Jesus' divinity, but there's a message behind the miracles as well. But it's super symbolic and referring back to the Old Testament. Jesus is going on and he's saying things like, I'm the new wine. I'm gonna be the new temple Break down this physical temple that you guys had that took you 46 years to build and I will raise it up in three days again. And people were bewildered to say the least because they saw that Jesus was actually teaching intelligible things but then he was saying these whack things as well. And so they were trying to bring these things with one another and so the one part of people were saying this is simply a madman making some weird claims and others were curious What's interesting, however, is that the Pharisees, these were the teachers of Israel, the people who knew the Torah, the law of God, the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, they knew them the best. They were scholars in God's word. As they were listening to Jesus, they heard a lot of the themes that Jesus was teaching and how there was aligning with the Old Testament promises. They were listening and they They saw the work that Jesus was doing and they saw the symbolism in it. They were hearing all the more clearer the allusions that Jesus was making to the Old Testament and he wasn't doing it in a random way. He was doing it perfectly and aligning it up but in a way that was totally unexpected at the time. And so even though Jesus was hitting the right notes, it didn't come in the way that they expected it. And so they were still befuddled and wondering, is Jesus really the promised Messiah or not? And so they were discussing it with one another. One of these guys was the leaders of the Pharisees. His name was Nicodemus. And this is where we come into our text. And so Nicodemus was hearing all the things that Jesus was saying and it was making sense, but he wanted to make sure, who is this person that is Jesus? And so we start off with John 3. It says that in the beginning, Nicodemus came by night to Jesus, probably using the cloak of darkness so not as to be seen to go conversing with Jesus. And the reason might be that even though there was enough to warrant a discussion with Jesus, that he was still worried about his reputation and public opinion. Because people were so divided about who and what Jesus was, he wasn't yet ready to risk it all to go and chat with Jesus. And so he said, okay, I need to find out who he is, but I'll go at night, not in a public setting to go and chat and have a discourse with Jesus. And Jesus comes to him and he says, Rabbi, We know that you are a teacher come from God. It's a big admission. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. And so obviously the council have been talking about Jesus and they, it was undeniable that Jesus was a teacher. They call him rabbi, even though Jesus had no formal rabbinic training. 
And so they recognized that he's got some sort of authority and they said, it seems like you're from God, otherwise you wouldn't have been able to do these things. And yet, even though he's addressing Jesus with a necessary respect, the title rabbi still falls short from Nicodemus' true understanding of who Jesus truly is, which is Messiah, Son of God. And so even in his address, there's a question, teacher, who are you? Not really addressing you as prophet or Messiah, somewhere in between teacher. And so Jesus answers him. Truly, truly, emphasizing. When, when you repeat a phrase in the Bible, it is to put an emphasis that this is very much true, what I'm about to say. He tells Nicodemus, unless a man is born again, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now, this initial statement of Jesus, I know we've grown up with the born-again language, and so it sounds very familiar to us, but put yourself in the shoes of Nicodemus. When we start speaking about the kingdom of God, it is God's dominion and his authority and the people that he is reigning over. At that stage in history, it was very much believed that if you were of Jewish heritage, you were automatically in the kingdom of God. What was up to you then was simply obeying the rabbinic law and making sure that you're an observant Jew. And so he is very familiar with kingdom language, but Jesus saying that you need to be born again to enter into the kingdom of God must have confused him on these two fronts. First, Nicodemus is questioning himself, but, but aren't I in the kingdom already? I'm, I'm observing all the laws. I'm doing everything that I can to be a good Jew. Why do I need to enter the kingdom a second time? And the second thing that utterly confuses him is the language of being born again. And so he's saying, how can a man when he is old enter into his mother's womb again and be born again? And if I need to be born again, into what tribe do I then need to be born into? I'm already a Jew, but maybe there's a specific clan or a tribe that I need to be born in to further ensure that I'm part of the kingdom of God. You hear the exasperation of Nicodemus. He, he's sitting there. You can almost see him rubbing his head. It's like, how can these things be? How can this happen? And Jesus questions him. Are you not a teacher of Israel? And you do not know these things? I'm, I'm talking about earthly things. How to enter the kingdom of God. How to be part of God's kingdom? What if I started talking about the heavenly things, the consummated kingdom, about heaven one day and the ruling of those things? If you don't even understand this part, how are you going to understand that? And then Jesus tells Nicodemus that unless a person is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus just doesn't get it. And so it's clear that Nicodemus and Jesus, even though they're talking about the same thing, the kingdom of God, they're missing one another completely. Nicodemus was once convinced that only as a result of his natural Jewish heritage and that he's an observant of the Jewish law, that he is in the kingdom of God. And now Jesus is suggesting that entry only happens through this spiritual rebirth. And so what is Jesus saying? Well, one thing that he's telling Nicodemus 
and a, a practice that they had that if you were born a Jew, then you had certain things to modify your behavior to make sure that you're living as a Jew. So you had the natural circumcision, you had the purification laws, you had the way to live a specific life to ensure that you are part of the kingdom of God. And if you were an outsider, not born a Jew, then there was a very specific entry process of how to modify your behavior so that you would live a Jewish lifestyle and therefore be entered into the kingdom of God. But Jesus is saying no. The idea of behavior modification is wrong. Jesus is not suggesting, and listen to the language that Jesus is using, that a person's being should be amended to enter into the kingdom of God, but rather that a person's whole being should change in order for you to enter the kingdom of God. How can this be? If, if trying to change ourselves and modify our behaviors is already so difficult and we've agreed with one another, you can maybe change about 10 or 15% of, of who you are. How can you completely change your being to enter into the kingdom of God? And this is what Jesus is mentioning, that it happens through a rebirth by spirit and water, pointing to this new dispensation that Jesus is bringing in, that through baptism and the filling of the Holy Spirit, the acknowledging of who Jesus is, we are rebirthed. And what's more, is that the spirit through whom one receives the new birth moves like the wind. And what Jesus is saying is that this new birth, it's not even up to you. In the same way that you can't control the wind out there, in the same way the spirit moves, and it is from an external force that comes and changes you and gives you this new birth. Meaning we can't control it. We're not in control of saying who gets to be rebirthed and who doesn't. This is a total departure from Nicodemus and the systems and the way of thinking that we are the ones that make the change, that it is up to us to enter into the kingdom of God. The problem with Nicodemus's way of thinking and the way that he was approaching his religion was from the standpoint that it's up to us that we have to enter into this kingdom. We have to do certain things. We have to live to a certain standard to be accepted into the kingdom of God. And to, to be completely honest with you, the way that Nicodemus approaches his religion is very much the same way that we see a lot of Christian bookstores approach our religion a self-help, self-improvement process. Do you want to change? Do you think you need change to be a better Christian, to be accepted by God? Do you want to pray more? Do you want to be more disciplined? Do you want to be a good father or mother and have a good marriage and good relationships, a good uh, vocation and a way that you're living your life? Do you want to have a balanced lifestyle? Well, here's the five ways that you can do it. Here's the 10-point process of what you can do to at long last be a changed person. And oftentimes, these books actually have good advice to give and they have good practices and they have good tips. But we so often just look at the steps that we need to take that we think will be able to change us that it reinforces the idea that if we wanted to enter the kingdom of God, if we want to be truly transformed into the image of Jesus, that there is this magic formula that we need to unlock, a special prayer that needs to be said, and we will arrive. 
that we, if we want to acquire the righteousness and the different lifestyle and the peace that the Bible promises to us, that you've got to do A, B, and C. Here's the righteousness hoodie. Take it on and you'll be a changed person. And the problem that most of us have experienced, and I'm pretty sure all of us have done this to a certain degree, is that you can keep it up for a while, but then you slide back into your old habits. You, you try to be more disciplined, you try to be a better person, you try to be different, but it simply doesn't last. And whether you know Jesus or not yet, what happens then if you approach Jesus or at least religion in this type of way is that you can do it for a while and you try again and you try again and you try again and pretty soon you're gonna become disillusioned with this whole Christian thing. It's just for, not for me. You know, I've tried it. I've tried reading my Bible, I've tried praying, I've, I've gone to church, I've done the, all the buzzwords, community and fellowship, and I don't know, what's the other buzzwords that we have? Accountability, oh, that's a big one. Accountability, life on life, discipleship, that's the newest one. Do life together. I've done all of that. I'm still the same person. I don't really see the fruits of change in my life. And so we walk away not even truly getting to the heart of what Christianity is. And so as we look at this passage, Jesus says that the only way that we can have lasting change, permanent, holistic change, is through rebirth. Okay? And as we look at the incredulous response from Nicodemus, how can these things be? We stand on the other side of the cross and we read the following words of Jesus and we recognize how this can ha happen without it being up to us. Follow with me from verse 14. It says that as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, Jesus is speaking, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that they may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And so Jesus starts by referring to a story in Numbers 21. I wish we had more time to dive into this. Uh, but what happened in Numbers 21 is as the Israelites were journeying through the desert from Egypt to the promised land, they go through a difficult spell and they start grumbling. Oh, we don't really think of this as for us. I'm not really sure if God's word is true. And so God just punishes them. The, the actual text says that he sent fiery serpents. Now, I'm not sure if it was snakes that were on fire because that would have been pretty intense <laughs> to go and torment the people or they were just shining in the desert sun. I don't know what it says. But it says fiery serpents and then people were being bitten by these snakes. Imagine snakes that are out to get you. This is a pretty frightening thought. Again, movies of the Old Testament, this would be 
this would be pretty entertaining. And um, people were starting to die. This is pretty serious. And so they're crying out to God, God, we're sorry, have mercy on us. We want to turn back to you. And God says, okay. And he instructs Moses to erect a bronze statue of one of these fiery serpents, one of these snakes, and to lift it up. And as he lifts it up, and he puts it on a hill, and everyone that is bitten, that has the, the venom coursing through their veins, lest they die, they had to go to the statue or to this monument that Moses erected. And if they looked on that and believed, they would, have, they would be healed from the venom that was injected into them. And Jesus is saying, similarly, those who now have the venom of sin coursing through their veins, that is on the road to eternal death. Similarly, the Son of Man, Jesus, will be lifted up on the cross. And those who come to him, they recognize that we are doomed by ourselves. If you look at him in faith, you will be saved and you will be healed from the venom coursing through your veins. We see John 3.16. What a, probably the most well-known verse and, and for good reasons. What, what a wonderful verse. The motivation for God doing this isn't because out of us deserving it. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God loved the world. And this is where his love is being exemplified. This is how he is affecting the rebirth and the change. But here's where the division comes in when we talk about God's love. Um, people from the outside say, well, how can, why do we need saving? How can a loving God judge me? Surely Jesus came to save all of us. And that's true. On the other side, we say, well, surely Jesus came to save, but I can't still live the way that I'm living, and so I should change. And that's also true. And so where do we meet? Will God one day accept me just as I am? Or will he judge me? And so the dividing line comes in, not with us and what we can achieve, but rather with Jesus and where we are in relation to him. We see that Jesus did not come to judge, but to save us from our deeds. However, those who reject Jesus are already judging themselves. Rather than thinking of a court case of who has done good and who has done bad, it is a line drawn in the sand. Think of kingdom language. Those who are for Jesus or those who are against Jesus. It's a judgment pronounced on ourselves. Do you align yourself with the kingdom of God and believe in Jesus or are you rather on the other side of the line in your own kingdom? And so what John 3.16 makes so beautiful is now everyone can come to Jesus. All can experience rebirth through the power of the resurrection. We can change. We can be saved. You can be a new person holistically. <coughs> But why is this difficult? Why doesn't everyone then in droves just come to Jesus to experience this change and this life-altering salvation? Well, we see because Jesus is light. Meaning that if you were to come to Jesus, 
you would be exposed. We all, before coming to Jesus, live in darkness. And so there's a particular vulnerability that you would need to accept as you come to Jesus. There's a recognition that you're not able to actually change yourself. You're not actually able to save yourself. That you have venom in your veins. That you actually deserve the punishment. But that you require Jesus' intervention and him saving you where you are. And we don't want to do that. We don't want to be exposed. We want to continue living the way that I'm living. And the second is in line with the language of kingdom language. In any kingdom, there's only one king. And so the line in the sand is, who's going to be king of your life? Yes, on this side, there's actually great things if you're king of your own life. You can do whatever you please. You can do whatever you think makes you, your life happy. What is the best for you and yourself? And that's true. That's one way of living life, and people are doing it well. On this side of the line, however, we do see that there is change and peace and love an acceptance in Christ. However, you're taking the crown off your own head. And so there's a price to be paid to experience this new birth. And for some, it's too great a price to pay. Not even thinking about the price that has already been paid on the cross. And so how do we do this? How do we then approach from this side of the line to that side, looking to Jesus on the cross? allowing his spirit to rebirth us, change us into a new person. And we're gonna, not going to spend too much time on it, but that's the interaction between John's disciples and John the baptizer. I love how Christy put it there a couple of weeks ago, John the baptizer, so I'm stealing it from him. But we see this interaction where John the Baptist, or the baptizer, <laughs> he had this immense following as he was preparing the way for Christ to come. And with following in those days came recognition. And in an honor and shame culture, recognition is a currency. And so he was probably doing well for himself, even though he didn't accept anything, didn't have money. He was wearing camel's hair and eating locusts. He was the bear girls of the time. But his disciples were probably enjoying the fame and the currency with him. This was setting them up. But as Jesus' uh, prominence was rising, more and more people were following Jesus. And so these guys' clout was going down. Their recognition was going down. And the disciples, even as they were chatting with another Jew about purification things, they saw these things happening and they were worried. They're like, yo, boss, we're losing our influence. What is happening here? And John the baptizer very eloquently says this. And I think... I think, Tamba, you preached it in the beginning, or, or Uli preached, uh, uh, prayed it as well, that we must decrease and he must increase. John Bat the, the Baptist had this clear vision of recognizing we are not it. We're not the Messiah. We can't save or change ourselves. What we need is to, in humility, invite Jesus in and to come do it for us. <coughs> and so this is true for all of us. What we need at the first step is the spiritual eyes to see who we are in relation to God, to have the humility to approach the throne of grace. Like little children, we have nothing to give. But on that moment, we get changed and we receive everything with Christ. Two application points and we're done. Tying all of this together. 
unsure, maybe you're unsure where you stand with regards to Christianity. You, you, you've heard a lot about it. You've tried it. Hasn't really worked for you. Hasn't really given the fruit that you thought it would. Um, and here's the thing. Maybe you've approached it in this formula-like way of this self-improvement. Jesus gives no judgment from where you're from or what you've done. But what he is doing is saying he's inviting you to come and trust in him and to be changed not by yourself but by the Spirit who does this in a miraculous way that we don't even understand. In an instant, he revives our spirit so that we can start this new life with him. And the moment we get changed, it, say, it never says that we are birthed into this fully mature adults. We are babies. We are immature babies in diapers throwing tantrums when things don't go our way, wanting everything in our time and our place, and we've got to learn how to live in this new reality with God. But know this, that everyone is invited. And so I don't know where you've been or, or what you've heard from God before, but John 3.16 rings true. And now, to those that have been Christians for a while, that have maybe also become disillusioned. There's been some change in your life, some progress, but it feels like the change is just doesn't keep on happening. The, the growth maybe started exponentially in the beginning, but now at the end of your life, it feels like it's slowing down, that you somehow have regressed from where God is calling you. What do we do now? Now suddenly, because we've already been rebirthed, I can't be rebirthed again, so now we go to the self-help books. Now we try and change everything that we can, forgetting the principle of what changed us in the first place and what will continue to grow and change us. The thing that will continue to grow you and help you grow in spiritual maturity won't be your own discipline, won't be your ability to improve yourself. It's gotta be similarly the thing that initially saved you, which is a reliance on who Jesus is, what he's done, and on the work of the Spirit. No one controls the Spirit. That's the first thing. We don't control how fast we grow and what we do. That's up to God. What we have to do is surrender ourselves to the work of God. So how does this happen? Maybe as an illustration, and I'm really almost at the end there, but um, we're like ICU patients that have woken up out of a coma that have been operated on. And you know who you are cognitively, but, but the rest of your body and what to do, how to walk, how to speak, but the rest of your body is playing catch up. Uh, I remember when I had a knee operation, they were cutting some of the nerve endings and I was actually struggling to walk in the beginning. It is the weirdest sensation. You know, I mean, I'm an adult. I know walking is one foot in front of the other, but I physically could not get my leg to bend and move and to put up and put the one in front of it. It was this constant reminder that you're telling your leg, get up, move, you know how to do this. That you start learning this again. And the same is for us as Christians. We, we somehow cognitively know who we are in Jesus, that we are a new creation, that the old life and its old practices, that's not who we are, but our nerve endings have been cut and we're slowly growing to once again realize that. And so when we talk about new birth language, what a Christian isn't doing, they're not becoming 
or trying to become more like Jesus. They're realizing that in their new birth, we are like Jesus. We are just getting our lives more aligned with that. And so every day, we've got to wake up and we've got to remind ourselves through different ways that this is who we are. That old life, that's not you. We've got to apply the grace of Christ that will allow us that grace to slowly, incrementally change us. And the moment you get frustrated, give it to God and remember it's not up to you. He's the one that's in control. And so practical things that we can do is remind one another that he is the one changing you, is actually look at the scope of your life. Has there been any change for the better? And if the answer is yes, don't give yourself too much credit. It's not you. <laughs> it's the Spirit, meaning that the Holy Spirit is working in you. What an encouragement is that? No good change came from yourself. And so if the Spirit has begun the work in you, He will continue to do the work in you and He will bring it unto completion. Our job as Christians is daily return to the fact that we have been birthed again by the work of the Holy Spirit through faith in Jesus. This is what we do when we read, when we pray, when we say we preach the gospel to ourselves. We remind ourselves, Jesus is changing me. This is who I am. You're not a person that actually likes McDonald's. You want the good steak. You're not a person living in this old life. You actually have, a, it doesn't feel like it. You're like stumbling through it and growing in it as a baby and trying to mature, but this is who you are. May we family continue to live more in the reality of the identity in which Christ has called us. Amen. Father, we pray this morning, even as we finishing a chapter of Red Door Church at St. Albans, that we can recognize that so many of the things that is happening right now is actually outside of our control. And, and even within that, Father, we want to recognize your sovereignty and we want to recognize your goodness. And so I pray this morning more than ever that we would see this beautiful passage that the rebirth happens not through what we try and sometimes do, behavioral modification, but it is instantaneous through a work of the Spirit, and you will continue to grow us more into fully functioning adults. And Father, we know that along the way, we will get discouraged. Either the process isn't happening quickly enough, or not to our liking, or we have regressed in thinking that we're still in our old lives. And Father, we pray that we would call one another to believe that the work that you've done on the cross is enough to believe that we have been healed from the venom coursing in our lives. We are simply trying to learn and to discover who we actually are in you. We are not becoming. We are. For that, we, we, we love you. We thank you. We pray that this would be such a place of grace for everyone, wherever we are in our walk with you. We love you and we thank you, Jesus. Amen.